Hey you, this is Dr. Linda Austin, and it is time for They're Driving Me Nuts, a podcast that's all about that most common of human experiences, dealing with difficult people. I've been a practicing psychiatrist for oh, about a million years. I hosted the public radio show, What's On Your Mind, for 13 years. Most importantly, I'm a wife, a mom, and a grandmom. But even though I know I've seen a lot, I never think I've seen everything. And that's what makes this show so amazing. So stay with me and let's see if we can find the fun in dysfunctional. <laughs> This morning, I came across a really interesting article from Scientific America about empathy. It turns out that we are hardwired back from our earliest evolutionary history as mammals to be highly socially responsive to each other. In this article, for example, uh, there were references to studies of fruit bats, of all things, because fruit bats are highly social animals. And it has been discovered that the EEGs, that is the electrical activity in the brains of these fruit bats, tend to synchronize when they are in close proximity to each other and don't when they're in different rooms from each other. So there's something about the closeness that makes the fruit bats little thimble-sized brains synchronize. Well, if that's the case in fruit bats, and that's the case in other animals, and we're seeing more research coming up about this synchronization of brain waves that occurs in humans, it becomes really clear that the ability to empathize with others must have tremendous evolutionary significance. That is, it's hardwired into us to be empathic, because it's important for animals to be highly responsive to each other. So if one dog starts barking, what happens? The other dogs start barking. If one wolf starts baying at the moon, miles away, other wolves start baying at the moon. If you see someone yawn, you too will start to yawn. If you think about someone else yawning, you too will start to yawn. And as I delved into the research on this topic, it turns out that they're actually a number of different neurologic um, pieces of engineering, let's say, that help us to do that. So some of it is evidently the synchronization of brain waves that occurs when people are close together and empathizing with each other. There are also neurons in the brain called mirror neurons that make us empathize with other people. It's been found that if you are comparing just observing someone else in a state of emotion, whether it's positive or negative, versus imitating the facial expressions of that person, both will induce a state of empathy. But that state of empathy and the nerve activity correlates that go along with that is actually greater in situations in which you are uh, motorically imitating the facial expressions of the other person. So clearly this drive, this, it's not even really a drive, it's kind of a feature of our wiring to be empathic to others is very, very, very central to who we are, not just as human beings, but even as mammals. And then you wonder, well, maybe it goes deeper than that. Maybe little ants are hardwired uh, to be empathic or certainly to communicate with each other. Well, 
That's a wonderful thing. And you know, if you have very empathic friends, that it's just such a joy to be able to share something with that person, whether it's happy or sad or victorious, or you're feeling threatened or jealous or petty or whatever, and have that person just get it. But I would ask the question, might there lie within this phenomenon some clues about what makes it so hard to be with difficult people? That is, why can't we just sit back and watch someone being a jerk or being overly needy or boring or whatever and just kind of accept it and and let it go with that? Well, maybe it has to do with the fact that those states of being are highly contagious. And it's very difficult, it's very challenging to be exposed to them without empathizing with them. And that empathy can then lead you to feeling drained after a period of time. This, I think, is especially true if that difficult person is your child. It's been attributed to many different people, Goldie Hawn, Jackie Kennedy, who knows who first said this, that you can't be happier than your most unhappy child. And yet, I would say, well, foo on that. What's wrong with being the happiest person in your family? And if you are the most miserable person, is your most miserable kid, how in the world can you ever achieve happiness when one of your kids, if you have several of them, is bound to be in a state of going through something at some time? But it leads to the question of, okay, well, then how can you be helpful to somebody you care about who's going through a difficult time or just has a difficult personality generally? How can you be helpful? How can you be present? How can you be helpful in an empathic and caring way and yet not be dragged down into the misery? Because what that can eventually lead to is you just get burnt out and you become as miserable as they are. Well, here's an analogy that I think is really helpful, and there are different pieces to this analogy that we can walk through as to why I think it's such a great image of how to be present and caring and yet not immersed in misery. Back in 1987, and it kills me to think that some of you weren't around in 1987 because I certainly wasn't. I remember this very well. 1987, there was a riveting story that just took over the news for a period of several days. And it was about uh, an 18-month-old little girl. She was actually a baby, a teeny tiny, 18 months old, named Jessica McClure in Midlands, Texas. And little baby Jessica had been playing in her aunt's backyard at her daycare center. And her mother had had to run in for some reason. And there was an eight-inch round well shaft, almost more of a pipe than what you would think of as a true well. And baby Jessica fell into this well and was lodged 22 feet below the surface of the well, but was alive. Well, this became a huge national interest as to how is baby Jessica going to be saved. And plan was not to go down in directly after baby Jessica, because after all, this well shaft was only eight inches wide. An adult couldn't possibly do that. But the plan became to drill a shaft 
next to baby Jessica and then take it under baby Jessica and pull her out under and take her up that way. So as I describe this as a way of getting someone out of the well, are you starting to see the analogy? Well, baby Jessica was down in the well for 58 hours. But during that time, she wasn't alone. They dropped a microphone down to her so they could talk to her. She didn't have food or water for that period of time. Her foot, one of her feet was wedged up above her head. So she was in a very um, awful physical position. But they talked to her the whole time and they could hear her moan a lot. They could hear her cry a lot. But they also heard her singing Winnie the Pooh song uh, from time to time. And so even though they weren't going down in the well, they were really with baby Jessica. And I'm sure for her, the sound of her parents' voices was really, really important. Well, this story had a remarkable ending They were able to drill the shaft beside the original well. They extricated baby Jessica. They got her out. They thought they would have to amputate her foot. They didn't. They did have to amputate part of a toe. And she did have to have some uh, plastic surgery. She actually had 15 surgeries after this. But as of this recording, baby Jessica is grown up now. She has children of her own. She has no conscious memory of having been down the well, even though she is a very famous person for all of the drama that ensued. So let's think about some of the elements of this and how it serves as such a great analogy for what to do when there's a difficult person in your life who's going through a very difficult time. Number one, you do not go down the well after them because what would happen? You would end up getting wedged on top of them. And is that helpful to them? Absolutely not. Is it helpful to you? Absolutely not. Does it create more problems for the people around who who are concerned and trying to be helpful? Yes, it does. So you don't go into that well of sadness, anger, despair, bitterness, fear. You stay on the surface. Analogy number two, does that mean that you don't communicate? Absolutely not. Remember that a microphone was dropped down to baby Jessica. You keep the communication going. You keep the conversation going. You let them know that you care, that you're interested, that you are there, and that you are wanting to do everything you can to be really, truly helpful. Uh, Analogy number three, sometimes expert help is necessary. Note, the parents didn't pull baby Jessica out of the well. They pulled in engineers from the oil drilling businesses around them, and they were the ones who went down and extricated baby. And I think number four, and a really important thing to remember, and for me, this is the most important part of knowing how to be present, how to be caring, how to be helpfully empathic without being another clone of the person's misery. You stay optimistic. Baby Jessica was pulled out of the well. And for the vast majority of human problems, there is every reason to stay optimistic. You know, I'm very fond of saying that I have been a psychiatrist for over 40 years. I have. And I've been a human being for a whole lot longer than that, too. And one of the things that I always observed is that there are 
two kinds of problems in life. There is serious terminal illness, and there is everything else. And everything else has the most remarkable way of almost always eventually getting better. We human beings are like corks, and you can take us to the bottom of the ocean and release us, and as corks do, we come up to the surface toward the light again. I have seen so many situations that have been mind-blowing in terms of how painful or scary or difficult they have been. And those range from substance abuse to having serious diagnoses to divorce to job loss to injury. You name it, we human beings will experience it. And yet, and again, I would say with the exception of a diagnosis of an imminently terminal illness, we have a remarkable way of eventually responding and eventually making our way to a better state. And that even includes situations like the loss of a child after a long and serious illness. Healing is very difficult, and the loss is never really completely gone, but it is remarkable that people do find a way of living a meaningful life again, a joyful life again, and pushing forward, because in the end, there's really no choice. And so when you are with your person who is going through a very difficult time, I think it's really important to attenuate a bit your empathy. That is, you share that you recognize how they are feeling, but you don't empathize with the sense of hopelessness, the sense of being overwhelmed, with a sense of pessimism and despair. Your empathy stops at that point, and you maintain that sense of optimism which I think is, in the vast majority of cases, really, really well-founded. Now, I mentioned that there are two kinds of problems. There is terminal illness and there is everything else. And if the situation that you are struggling with is terminal illness, I would suggest that a sense of happy optimism is inappropriate. Even deeply religious people uh, don't experience their illness with, with a sense of optimism. And so I think there is a whole nother set of approaches uh, that are really important. And we'll talk about that at another time. But that situation is not the majority of cases of difficult people. That's more a situation of the inherent episodic tragedy of life, which is a fact of life and which we all have to deal with at different times. So I hope this was helpful. I really do want you to think about your own practices of empathy. And I think that if you really think about weaving into empathy, an underlying sense of optimism, it actually will become much easier for you because you will not feel so drained and overwhelmed by being with a difficult person you're with. 
when I was a full-time practicing psychiatrist, clearly I would spend my days often hour after hour with people who were in difficult situations or there for some difficult reason. Although I would have to say that people were always in various stages of healing. So it certainly was not as if every hour of every day was filled with sobbing people or, you know, upset or freaked out people. Far from it. After you get through that initial evaluation period, then we would be on the road to recovery and people would really be feeling typically much better and getting much better. But at times when a therapy was in a difficult spot, or especially in the beginning of a therapy, I would often find myself looking at the person I was talking to and just visualizing how they were going to feel when they were no longer depressed, when their anxiety disorder had been treated, when they had worked through their relationship, when they had gone through some of the toughest parts of grief or whatever the issue was. And I would imagine how they would look, how they would feel, how they would smile, how things would be. And I always found that to be very uplifting and inspiring. And I also always felt that that inherent sense of optimism that I have about human beings was really, really, really helpful to my patients when they were going through their toughest times. And I think as you practice optimism, that people around you will find it incredibly refreshing, and you will find that your load is a whole lot easier also. Thanks so much for joining me today. If you have a problem with a difficult person and you'd like to come on air and chat with me about it, that would be awesome. Just go to my website, there, drivingmenuts.com. There's a little purple microphone on the home screen, bottom right, and leave me a message and I'll get back to you. Thanks again for joining me and have a great day. Bye-bye. Thank you.